This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Redeeming Power of Presence. And the author is Dr. Andrew Carey. And Andy joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Andy. Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, you're going to take us down a road into today, right now, the, this moment, the present, and an interesting spiritual look at what that means. Uh, first of all, though, I want to read a couple of things that you've written, just to kind of set the stage for everyone listening. You say this, the redeeming power of presence presents a powerful way of walking with Christ in the present moment in life that begins to unhook people from the ways and the definitions of the world that cause destruction and unnecessary suffering. Just like Jesus walked this earth without the future or past dominating his mind, we too are to walk in the way of the cross that cares not for itself, but lives freely in his redeeming love that transforms us into a powerful vessel of love that releases others as well into who they are meant to be. So we all have a responsibility not only for ourselves, but for others. Correct. Well, Andy, tell us why you chose this theme and and also share with us your professional background, your religious studies that led you to see this way. Um, To begin with, um, I guess um, I've had a whole interest um, in the deeper part of a person. Um, My whole field, I've been uh, teaching counseling and doing counseling over 20 years. Um, And so I've had a lot of interest in this deeper part and and even spiritually um, through my whole uh, Christian walk in terms of trying to live out the scriptures and and walk uh, more of the way that Jesus walked, um, I I saw that as not somehow happening uh, through outward things, but kind of paying attention to uh, the deeper uh, aspects of where we are in life and, and becoming more aware in those ways. And so I would say through the counseling field and kind of looking at things in a depth way, um, I began becoming more aware just through some of that, uh, along with as I would uh, understand the scriptures more deeply throughout life. Uh, But I would say it's been more recently, um, right before writing this book, uh, that I really um, was starting to see some literature in the counseling field that had to do with uh, being very present in life. Um, and kind of being more aware uh, in ways that we normally aren't. And so for me, as I kind of saw some of that, I just, uh, my mind always goes back to Jesus and, and the scriptures. And, and as I did, uh, I really thought about it. I thought, there's a lot more to walking in the present moment. Um, that's, uh, that's a powerful way that Jesus walked, that he, he stayed in the present moment. And so I started um, looking at the scriptures Uh, particularly about uh, being present. And when I did, I was astounded at how much pointed uh, in this direction of uh, being present and staying awake and aware to the moment
I think the other part that I realized, too, as I was starting to watch this way, was how much um, I even had a lens of past training and past uh, ways of thinking that came through impact uh, that kind of dominated my view of the present as well. And so, for me, that's, I started paying attention very much at a practical level, and I was shocked at how much I wasn't in the present. Uh, and yet, uh, because of my whole counseling field and, um, and when you counsel clients, it's extremely important to be very, very present with them in the moment so that we're uh, aware of some of the things that are coming across in the present moment. And so I would have thought that I would have been very uh, present and very much aware in the present uh, in my own walk, and I found out that I wasn't. Why do we typically focus on the future and want to rehash the past instead of looking at right now? Um, I think it's still the, the, the flesh part, um, the earthly part um, of our existence that wants to keep dominating in a way that we, um, that the spirit um, part that the scriptures would refer to as the new self in Christ. Um, the earthly part um, doesn't really want that truer part to emerge and become the full, um, the full person that we are that way. And so, um, and so staying out of the present, in other words, when the, when the earthly self focuses on the future or kind of looks at everything through a lens of the past, it is able to avoid being in the present moment. Because the present moment, it would seem to me, has a lot of personal responsibility. Yes, it has a lot of personal responsibility, and there's a lot of um, awareness that happens in the present moment, and we can actually stay blind more easily by staying focused on the future or being under this lens of how we've been trained and, and that our thinking can be so strong in certain directions of how we've been trained that we can be in the present moment and not even see the present moment. Um, and, and that's a way of staying blind to it is by not being in the present moment. Uh, and if I could just give an example, um, in the scriptures it says about now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Um, and, and the word abide was specifically chosen because those fruits of the Spirit um, really always exist. Um, as long as you stay in the present moment, you can't get away from those fruits. Um, the other translation is, uh, instead of abide, it uses the word remains. And, uh, and, and they do remain. Um, kind of like um, just uh, when you are in the present, they always are. And the parallel to that would have been the manna in the wilderness uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and the manna, a lot of times people think of as just... Um, kind of food, um, earthly food in a sense for people. But the manna in the wilderness really had to do with God's provisions as a whole. And, and the point was, you can't save up stuff from today for tomorrow. In other words, if you're focused on tomorrow and you, you try to collect things for tomorrow, it's, it kind of dries up into a nothingness and, and, and you don't have the good that you think you're getting when you're focused on tomorrow. And you can't go back to yesterday and gather manna. It's already gone. The only uh, manna and provision comes from the present moment where I am always exists. Well, that's a really good example. And, of course, you, what you just said, I am, is the present tense. 
So there's there's more than just responsibility for living in the day, today, in the present. There's also accountability. Yeah. Yeah, because as soon as you step out of the present moment, uh, things won't go as well. If if I'm very focused on the future, um, there there's no grace for the future yet, and I can be in this imaginary place in my mind and really be uh, kind of bent out of shape about certain things, and that happens more easily because I'm not paying attention to the present moment where God's grace and, and I am exists. Now, you talk about body pain and how that takes us out of the present yeah, it's. A, I mean, I just think that's a tremendous chapter um, about body pain. So anybody uh, in marriages or close relationships as a whole, um, I think there is tons to learn from that chapter on body pain. Um, I, I think anybody who's been in close relationships with people, uh, you can recognize the times of when a, a significant other says something to you and it just kind of, you feel this, almost like the electric zaps of this rush that happens through your body, or at the very least, if let's say you're less um, emotionally expressive, your whole countenance can change by a significant other's one statement. And, and what that is, is there's this emotional pain that is stored up in the body that tends to be on the alert for negative happenings again that line up with what it knew from the past. And almost always that body pain um, can't see accurately when you're under it. And so in other words, if, um, if my wife Kathy said something that kind of triggered this reaction in me, uh, where all of a sudden I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of more in touch with previous ways she has hurt me or maybe uh, that I was hurt growing up in childhood. And so that becomes more dominant right at the moment. And it's almost like I lost being present because those old um, negative associations, the thinking and the feelings become more present and more dominant in me at the moment. But, but here's something that's huge that I think people don't understand about this emotional kind of body pain that's in us. Um, like normally in life, we have kind of what you would call, quote, good and bad memories. But when you're under body pain, um, the body pain is like this entity of pain within a person that you're carrying. And because it's an entity of all pain, pure pain, it doesn't have a balance of good and bad memories. It only sees and, and knows of everything that was bad because that's all when it's pure pain. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's uh, when it's pure pain, that's all that um, can be known at the moment. And, and then there's no hope either because this pure pain feels like it has always turned out this way. I know how this turns out. And if anything, when we're under the body pain, we really work toward the old reoccurring again. And so we just confirm our beliefs of what we uh, already know. And all the communication is you always and you never. It's absolutes because the, the pure pain only knows one thing. It knows all the bad. So how do we... Uh, lack of a better word, uh, train ourselves th to think differently when that kind of pain seems to be inflicted upon us. I think one of the main things is to not focus outwardly when you're, I mean, that's at least the starting place. Um, when a person is under strong body pain, uh, here's one of the ways you can recognize it immediately. The person is very outward focused and very watching the outside in this distrustful manner. So when a person is in that state, 
Uh, like, in other words, if Kathy, let's say she's under, my wife, if she's under body pain at the moment, and then kind of she says things a certain way that triggers my body pain, um, what, what, what it means is that I almost can't pay attention to what's really happening in me. I'm so outward focused that all I can notice and, and, and stare at is um, what I believe is going to occur uh, that has already been the kinds of things that have occurred in the past. And, and so, um, so, again, catching it is uh, we can catch it by when we're staring outward in a distrustful or kind of paranoid way. And so that's a way to know, for instance, that I'm under body pain. And when I'm aware of that, I can know, oh, I don't want to keep communicating and going down this old track. Because one of the main things that, that people can do uh, when they're in a relationship and body pain starting up on both ends, one of the main things that really is helpful is to acknowledge from both ends, oh, we're under body pain, we're both looking outward at each other, it's probably a good time to take space to kind of pay attention, not to the other person, but for each to pay attention to themselves so that they can watch what's happening and notice um, all the non, uh, the non-loving kinds of things that begin to occur at those places. And as you, as you just pay attention and watch, things start dissipating, especially when you're watching has to do with what you yourself are, are doing. One of your last chapters in your book is titled, Being Present as Little Children, Putting mm-hmm. on Christ. Now, of course, Christ talked about us becoming like little children. Yes. I think we don't uh, put on Christ very well because we try to do it from adult places and we strive too hard. Probably one of the main ways that, uh, there's a number of ways that we come out of the present, Like, and I think I talked, and I'll just kind of, summarize that as I go into more of the question that you just brought up here. Uh, but you know, when we're so concerned about the future and goal-oriented, we come out of the present. When we have these, uh, the past training and, and beliefs that really come through our past experiences, that's kind of all the worldly training, and we can kind of lose the presence when that's dominating us in the moment. But also, uh, when we kind of have expectations that the moment be different than it is. So when we expect that um, that somehow this moment, like somehow, let's say there's some uh, life event that, that we would look at and think of as a difficult life event, uh, we a lot of times approach that in this way of this shouldn't be this way, as if something's wrong with this moment. And when we do that, we come out of the present Uh, And because we're distrustful that somehow what is at the moment is there for us to participate with in a way to grow further. And and so here's the thing. I guess I would say when people strive too hard, like, and I'll give an example. Let's say I see something in myself that I don't like and I think isn't very Christ-like or very loving. Um, It's easy to judge myself or to be against that part. And when I go that direction, it's almost like really this non-love of myself at the moment and unacceptance of what's happening at the moment. And as soon as we have unacceptance of, of whether it's a difficult life event or whether it's of myself and, I'm how, and how I'm handling life, as soon as I go to unacceptance, uh, I'm really, I come out of the present moment because I'm saying this moment, whatever's real, should not be this way at the moment. Life should be different than it is, or I should be different than it is. And so I think a lot of people strive too hard that hinders 
um, awareness and being present. And so putting on Christ in this childlike way is really more about a letting go. For instance, um, when I talk about being present, sometimes people go into this place of, um, I don't know how to be present. I, I just can't be present. And, and they're like gritting their teeth trying to become present, when really that's a striving. And, and instead, we actually become present much more easily just by letting go of everything at the moment. In other words, as I let go of everything, somehow it's easy to, ju- to just be, and it happens. And that's more the childlike way of, um, of trusting that I would say Christ is after us being present. And Christ's love, God's love as a whole, is for us and after us being able to come into a place of freedom more. And when we trust love that way, that we don't have to strive for it, and that instead when we kind of let go and open up, love and freedom and just being starts happening more. The title of the book, The Redeeming Power of Presence, and the author is Dr. Andrew Carey. Andy, tell us how to get your book. Um, if you just type in presenceandglory.com, uh, in the address bar, uh, that'll get you there directly. Or if you do it in a search engine like Google, that'll bring up uh, you know references to the site uh, that you can go to that way as well. Well, thank you, Andy. Thanks for being with us and sharing uh, on this author talk segment. Thank you very much. And thank you. And it was good being with you. That was Dr. Andrew Carey, the author of his book, The Redeeming Power of Presence. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs, and together let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time. With author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on Toginet.com. Was sad because right. he had a death pill, mommy and dad. Right. But that ain't the case. Nope. It wasn't his fate. No, nope. the walls never struggled to communicate. Y'all wave your hands. Look who's on. It's yeah. Dakota Man Keith, and he's number one. It's that Keith Wine Show on Toginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, that Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wine, and the show, go to his website, KeithWanWANN.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Don't miss that Keith Wan Show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on Toginet.com. 
Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Jewish People and Jesus. Is it time for reconciliation? You decide. And the authors are Joseph Buta and Stephen Daskal. And Joseph joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joseph. Hi, sir. How you doing? Well, I'm doing great, and this looks like a very, let's say, soul-searching kind of book, would you say? Well, I'd say so. I wanted to write a book that really made people think. There you go. Well, let me read a little bit what you have written just, just to set the stage. You say this, What I have done in this work is to take the Jewish point of view... As stated in David Klinghoffer's book, Why the Jews Rejected Jesus, and restated these ancient arguments against reconciliation, I argue for reconciliation, then leave the reader to decide. So you're going to give all the facts and let the reader make his own mind up. That's correct. That was, that was absolutely the intention. Because sometimes uh, you read certain kind of books, and they're all from one particular point of view. And if someone from a different point of view sees that, they would they're quite uh, um, much more easily to dismiss that. But if part of that book, or almost half of that book, may contain the point of view that you're familiar with, you may be more prone to, hey, read a little more, then the other point of view may become more palatable to you because your present point of view is also represented. So you grew up a Catholic. That's correct. And now, and here you are trying to help the Jews understand their heritage of really who they are? Well, what what happened really with me in a lot of conversations with some Jewish people, and I noticed is that many times when they would speak, they weren't speaking from what the Jews call the Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament. They would continually refer to the Talmud. So this got me curious in terms of what weight do the Jewish people, especially the more religious Orthodox, put on the Talmud vis-a-vis the Old Testament, because I already knew that the New Testament was rejected. So the question then became, where does the Talmud stand vis-a-vis the Old Testament? And this is what really, as I started to dig in more, this really gave me a lot of more inspiration for writing the book. So you want to help Christians, and, well, let's start with the Christians. You want to help Christians be aware that of centuries of Christian anti-Semitic feelings really helped form this wedge between Christians and Jews. Yeah, and and really, a a lot of folks, um, they just see, well, you know, the Jewish people reject Jesus. But when I started really investigating and going back through 2,000 years, um, really up to um, going close to about the 1,000 years after the Christian era really started, and and really before that, uh, the institutional anti-Semitism within the Christians of Europe became a problem. And I started to wonder, well, if the New Testament is talking about the Jews and and, and being God's chosen people in the apple of his eye, why were these Christians who were supposed to be getting their inspiration from the New Testament, knowing that Jesus and his followers were all Jewish, why did they have this feeling towards the Jewish people? And what I really found out is that for the first 300 and so years after Jesus and the apostles, anybody in the world that who wanted to come to faith in the Messiah, in the faith in Jesus, had to convert. 
There was no established church per se. Uh, the Christians at that time were persecuted by the Romans, and some of the persecutions were very bloody. So people at that time to come in faith in Jesus had to sometimes put their life on the line or decide this is the truth. And how did they come to that faith? They were reasoned into it. People were telling them about it, and they made decisions to leave the paganism that they believed in, whether Greek or its variant, the Roman style, or some other kind of belief. But after the time of Constantine, when, you know, what happened is that when the emperor started to say, is okay, you know what, we're not going to persecute the Christians. As a matter of fact, we're going to make it part of the, the empire itself. Well, in very short order, a lot of people who were pagans, instead of going through this conversion process, which the first 300 years of the folks did, both Jew and Gentile, into faith in Jesus, all of a sudden, when the emperor said it was okay, a Jupiter worshiper yesterday says, well, I guess I'm a Christian tomorrow. And and what happened is that conversion never happened. So the same attitudes that those folks had, whether they were anti-Jewish or whatever they were, then were with the folks, because they just took on a new title. So when the church became institutionalized, then what happened is, how do you bring all these people into it? And then at that time, to bring them all into it, a lot of pagan feasts were all then Christianized, and these people all then started to follow this new way. But they never went through that real conversion that happened with, with all the followers for the first 300 years. And then you start seeing those attitudes where they took on the moniker of Christian, and those people went on from there and just kept the same views. And eventually, uh, because the Jewish people would not conform within that Roman world, then they were considered outsiders and disdain was thrown towards them. And we see that all through, um, all through European history and really culminated in the Holocaust. And it wasn't really after the Holocaust uh, that you know, a lot of Christians, in, and, and specifically, uh, I think, uh, within the Catholic and Lutheran framework, started saying, "Is my goodness, how did this get to this point? When anybody who was learned in the scriptures knew from Romans 9 through Romans 11 that Paul strictly said that all the blessings that God has promised the Jewish people are still in effect. All of them are. And he says, because God gave you mercy when you were unbelievers, so you, the Christians, are to give the Jewish people mercy. So we're to love them unconditionally, whether they believe in Jesus or not, because we are the adopted sons and only come into the faith of God only by the grace of God. You want to make sure everyone understands as well, even though you were, you call yourself an Italian Catholic, that you couldn't write a Jewish-sounding book without your good Jewish friend, Stephen Daskal. That's absolutely correct. So Stephen was uh, kind of uh, watched over your shoulder, so to speak. Well, I- I'll tell you about my relationship with, uh, with Steve. Um, we were in a, uh, I was in a forum really speaking about Middle Eastern issues, and, and, and Steve was in there, and he came out that he was Jewish. But as we were talking about certain kind of things, eventually he led on that he was a traditional Jewish person who um, was kind of searching because he, he was sharing in some of his uh, opinions on Middle Eastern issues that he had problems with some of the declarations that the rabbis had said. So um, in doing that, he started searching, and his search took him in many different areas. So finally he came to the New Testament, and that was the last thing because accepting Jesus was pr- the worst thing that anybody, anybody who was Jewish Jewish could do. So he thought, well, look, I'll read this book, their book, and uh, anyways, for an intellectual exercise, and, um, you know, just prove that this is is false also. So he read it, and uh, he says, as he read it, he was absolutely hooked by the person of Jesus, especially the references to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he was raised that Jesus was just a a Gentile deity. And, um, And then it was...
but the rabbis have said you don't even go there. How Steve was raised basically told me, he says, if you picked up the New Testament, read it, you were already guilty of idolatry because it was introducing his false god. So, and at his point, because he was uh, kind of... Um, not in agreement with what the rabbis had been saying, and find, found a lot of things they were saying were burdensome to him, he decided, well, I'm going against the rabbis, I'm going to read this book. And through it, his faith walk then turned into, he turned into a Messianic Jew. He saw the yoke that Jesus brought as, uh, as much lighter than the rabbis, and he saw him fulfilling the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures, where the emphasis was placed on the written Torah, uh, r- rather than the oral Torah, which the rabbis believe in. So, so, so he really came to that faith. Well, knowing that faith walk, when uh, I got to know Steve and we started to talk, I told him that I had written this book and it was almost done. And from a Jewish perspective, could he make sure that I got all the Jewish stuff right? And that's where Steve's contribution to the book was wonderful, because if I wrote something that I thought was right, and he says no to a Jewish audience, this, is, this wouldn't be correct, then Steve was the guy who tweaked all those things for me to make sure that it was absolutely accurate. And when Steve gave me the thumbs up, Joe, it's good to go, and then uh, we, we went to publish it. One of the controversial aspects of your book, you say, is that Jewish people can recon- reconcile their faith to include Yeshua and remain Jewish. Right, and, and this has been the con- contention from, from the beginning that, well, if Jewish people accept Yeshua, then uh, automatically they have to fall into an Orthodox Christian, Catholic Christian, Protestant Christian thing. In other words, they have to leave where they are and join the Gentiles. Well, any Jewish person that would read the Old Testament, they're not seeing anywhere when you read any all the books of Moses and the prophets that, uh, where does it say... I have to leave the law and what the forefathers said and join the Gentiles. So this became really problematic. But as the Jewish people then, a person is guided to please examine your own scriptures, get into your own scriptures, and in your own scriptures, absolutely it tells who the Messiah, who is the Messiah. You should be able to do that without the rabbinical interference. Read it for yourself and try to say, like, what is this picture of the Messiah being, uh, that's being drawn in, in the Old Testament, in, in the Tanakh? And in doing that, invariably, if, if they're free of that and look at it like that, it points to Yeshua, it, it points to no one else, especially in the reading of Isaiah 53. So in doing that, then say, well, if I come into that faith, what else can I do? Well, the good news is there are many other Jews out there who have come to the same point of view, have maintained all the traditions of, of the Jewish people, and worship Jesus within a Jewish setting. And that's very important. So as a person like myself, raised Italian, uh, Italian Catholic, I understand why Jewish people wouldn't want to get involved with that. It would be very foreign to them. Absolutely. And all but, religions, as you state, all religions do not lead to salvation. No, they don't. No. And, and, and it's in this way, not to be closed-minded, but Christianity or um, following the Jewish Messiah is different, because this is the only faith, only one, where God himself becomes man. And God doesn't just become man because he feels like it. God specifically becomes man because this is the only way that sinful people, people who have faults, can be reconciled with an absolutely holy God. Above being loving, God is holy. 
and justice comes with that. So all of us humans who are tainted, there's nothing that we can do personally that can impress God. Nothing. Because our motivations, everything comes into suspect before a holy God. So the only way that we can truly be justified is God became man to do everything perfectly, and then not only that, allow himself to be terribly abused. In other words, go through things that we go through personally are even worse. And accept all that, bring all of that evil onto himself, so that when we accept what he's done for us, God lowering himself to be abused by us, when we accept that, then when the Lord himself looks upon us, he sees his son. And in seeing his son, it justifies us because all of our imperfections are no longer visible to him. We put on his son and therefore can enter into his grace. Why didn't the faith of the apostles and disciples die after the crucifixion? Well, the only good explanation is that, in your question, it should have died. By all reason, it should have died. Jesus was publicly crucified. He was mutilated. He was ripped to shreds. So... What reason can people come up with? Well, some people can say, well, there was this mass hysteria. You know, when Jesus was arrested, they all ran for the hills. The only one that showed up and in the crucifixion was well underway was John uh, to accompany Mary, uh, Jesus' mother. So he, sh- he showed up. Um, the rest of them really, you know, the, to, so to speak, they went for the hills. So what happens is some event, some event happened that changed their behavior. Wherefore, they were more on fire for him than when they were actually with him before. Because a lot of things that he spoke about to them, they didn't get. They just didn't understand. But we know this. Let's talk about what we know instead of belief. Publicly crucified, because not only is it in the Gospels, it's also in other sources, Roman sources, other Greek sources, that verify he was crucified. We also know something else. We know for absolute certainty that the tomb was empty. We know that, because there were no Jewish writings from that time that says, we found the actual dead body of Jesus. There was no Romans who wrote about it that we, we hear what is, the actual dead body. You show up with the dead body, the gig is up, it's over. So we know absolutely for sure that the Jewish people and the Romans never found that body. On top of that now, all of a sudden, we have this really boldness of these apostles who were with Jesus, but scattered when he was arrested and went through his passion, who are now emboldened. So they're emboldened. So the question then becomes, oh, Joe, they were just making it up. Well, you know what? Sometimes as human beings, I think, we can lie if we can profit from lying. So if they all lied, let's say, what did they gain from their lying? They gained uh, expulsion from their own community. They gained being beaten. And eventually, they all died terrible deaths. They gained nothing. The only one who probably died of natural causes was probably John uh, when he was exiled. That's all, and he was a very old man. But the rest of them were terribly persecuted. So the only thing that sustains this, like it sustained Paul, was knowing for sure. It wasn't even faith in them. They know for sure that the Messiah rose from the dead, and he spent time with them, and they viewed his nail prints in his hands and his feet, and the spear and his shredded torso from the scourging. That was what made them act that way and being filled with the Holy Spirit because now they were totally on board. So the Messiah, in God's own way, left it with these 12 
people, and, and Paul was a big part of it too, and then the, these folks changed the world. It was only through that knowing absolutely that changed their life. The title of the book, The Jewish People in Jesus. Is it time for reconciliation? You decide. And the author is Joseph Buta and Stephen Daskal. Joseph, tell us how to get your book. Okay, well, what you can do, you can uh, go to my, um, my blog, and my blog is at uh, http uh, colon backslash backslash jobuta, all one word, uh, dot wordpress.com. And then you can go to that blog, and then you can, you can purchase the book right there. Or you can go to any bookstore. If the bookstores don't carry it, um, you can just give them my name and the title of the book, and they'll order it for you. Or you can go right to the publisher, Author House, and you can buy it straight from the publisher. So you have really three different ways uh, to get the book. Well, thanks for being on Author Talk, Joseph. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for calling me. I really enjoyed this. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. People think I've made it. I'm popular. I seem happy all the time. I have great clothes and I'm involved in everything. But I have questions, doubts, and fears, just like every other teenager. That's why I'm glad for Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. Join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. The choices we have to make that can alter the course of our lives. Life is too much pressure if we try to go it alone. I tune in to Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell every week to get reminded that I'm not alone. Nicole O'Dell is an expert on what happens in the lives of teenagers. Join her as she deals with topics like peer pressure, purity, drugs, alcohol, and many other things that might come up along the way. She writes books and speaks to people all over the place, but she says her favorite moments are when she can pull up a chair and chat with teens about what's important to us. For more information on Nicole and her books, go to NicoleO'Dell.com. Then join us for Teen Talk Radio with Nicole O'Dell, Thursday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet.com. Teen Talk Radio, where it's all about choices. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Rules of Chivalry for Nuclear War, How We Fight and Persuade Each Other. And the author is Albert W. Johnson, and Albert joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Al. How are you today? Good to have you with us, Al. I want to read a few things that you've written. You say this... All right, you ignorant clods, you brood of vipers, you English and Irish, Philistines and barbarians, Bolivians, Chileans, Chinese, Tibetans, Indians, Pakistanis, Hindus, and the list goes on and on. You are all wrong. You are wrong because you do not know how to fight, and you are fouling up our beautiful world. Shape up and change your ways. 
Is that a, a speech that you've given to all these people before? <laughs> no, that, that's just something that occurred to me, but uh, I think that's correct. Yes, so you're saying, too, that we should not try to prevent war, but rather to promote more and better small wars conducted in accordance with mutually recognized rules of engagement. So we're going to go into details about all what all that means, but first of all, we just want to hear some about your military background. Okay. Well, let's see, I, I, uh, I joined the Navy when I was, was 18 to, to avoid being drafted. And then I, went, I spent four years in the Naval Academy. Then I was in the Korean War for the last active year of, that it was, was being conducted. That was a, uh, for me, that was a fun time. And then, then I was a, uh, Project officer for the the defensive equipment on the B fifty two, which is one of the, one of my highlights of my my life. Uh, let me let me just brag a little bit about the B fifty two. In the in the Vietnam War, it was sort of proved itself by fighting against the MIGs, and the fight. But as far as we can tell, the final score was thirteen and nothing in favor of the B fifty two, which I think is pretty good for a bomber. And it's. Uh, a beautiful airplane. Then, then the Air Force sent me to MIT for a couple of years, which is a, where I met my first wife. And that was a beautiful time. And then I was the project officer for the for the first uh, military satellite, which is the Corona Discover program. That was a, another another very wonderful time. Pretending to be a international spy and, and actually being one was was a real blast. And then, of course, I've I've uh, I worked for for uh, special projects for a few years of just the Air Force program for space. And then I worked for Lockheed for over ten years. And then I'm I'm currently uh, running a at a restaurant and fellow station in, in West Nebraska, my hometown. My hometown is I'm really happy of all. So you've come full circle, sounds yes. like, right? Yes. <laughs> but an incredible journey along the way and an interesting, provocative philosophy because you say don't try to prevent war. Oh, yes. Yeah, I think we should fight. But, but how, you, how you fight is more important than what you fight about. So how do we get people to think chivalry when they're trying to, uh, you know, win the war? I mean, it well, it's, doesn't seem like it's the American way. It's not. It's absolutely not. But uh, I, 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 you have to have an have a overview in your mind, of, of, which includes love and compassion for the other person and consideration for them. And the essence of it is chivalry. And chivalry really uh, equates to restraint? Yes, it's a self-restraint. You say this, I shall try to convince you that self-restrained fighting is not necessarily abhorrent behavior that should be regarded as regrettable violence arising from either our innate character flaws or undesirable social conditions, but is instead the foundation of civilization. 
So yes, fighting will has been a part of man's nature, and you can't stop it. You're, is that what you're advocating? Yes, and we should not stop it. In fact, we, we should fight for, for the things that are right. And so, so fighting for the right is uh, sort of the essence of why we're here, why God put us on earth. So the battle is over what's right. Yes, exactly. That, that of course, is, depends on your point of, view, of your sure. point of view. So you've got a number of chapters uh, in your book, 12 chapters, and uh, I'm just looking at things... Uh, now, you have a chapter, Warriors I Have Known. I guess these warriors, you learn something from them. Yes, that's true. They're simply... Give us some examples and what you learned. Well, of course, of course, my, uh, my dad is the primary influence in my life. I spend a bit of time on, on him. He's, he's just, a, just a wonderful man. I think he was the, the, the best warrior ever ever known. And then, of course, the... There was uh, Lou Allen, who I worked with on the Corona program, and he was, he was uh, quite a quite a force in my Air Force career. And uh, we used to joke that he could, he could never hold a job. He kept from being promoted out of his out of his job, and he wound up as as chief of staff of the Air Force. And, uh, and of course, there are my my. Uh, my uh, Naval Academy classmates, I'm, I'm very proud of, of them. And there's a lot. They, they all are very dedicated. I'd say without exception, they're all, all dedicated uh, people to try, try to do the right thing. And uh, I love them all. They, uh, that's a, a few people I'm I guess there was, I did mention the word, the one I, I do admire least, and that was Robert McNamara, but I went in a little bit of my, my rice down on that. That's, I think, I think you'll find them entertaining. You talk about decreasing the spiral of retaliation, so the, the defender has a responsibility? Yes. Well, how does the defender restrain himself? Well, there's one. I, I think that decreasing spirals of retaliation has to be the essence of, of war. We we have to have to set that up in, in a or, or our, our ideal has to include that that concept. And uh, the well. This is the really the most difficult thing I've ever, ever, ever really pondered on. But I think we need to set up the idea that that you you have to that sacrifice has to be the the essence of of war. You have to include that. But you you should make. Your protocol should include the idea that you sacrifice before the the uh, at the beginning of the war, rather than at the end of it. That uh, uh, this has to include the idea of the of the of the, the initial the initial sacrifice to the, to display your determination. 
the intersection on scenarios that uh, of how this might be done. I uh, I'm not satisfied with that for that section of that. I'd still like to write a couple more of those, but uh, but I, I I I tried tried to get over that that hump by by the six month scenarios. Now you talk about the ideal chivalrous warrior. So in our minds, we we often have you know the 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 soldier, the hero in our mind, and we have a certain image of of that soldier, and it usually is a uh, Rambo. Devast- yeah. yeah, Rambo. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have that in our mind, don't you? Don't yeah. we? Or you yeah. know, John Wayne. You know, right. the okay. That, that's that's not quite the, the movies that I, I would have. And so describe, paint us this picture of this chivalrous warrior, the ideal warrior. Well, he, he's, he's simply a, a, a person that, that uh, uh, can confront you with, with the idea that he's, he, uh, he is determined, but he, he's also restrained. Just has have both of both both the elements at the same time. Some something like like a Jesus or a, or Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi is probably the uh, the, the 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 best example of the nineteenth century or, or whatever. And what it, what it, how is how how a warrior really has to fight. So if. If the United States is attacked uh, by nuclear weapons, nuclear missiles, what is your recommendation? How do we deal with that to, I guess, uh, have the least amount of of uh, damage? Well, I think our our homeland uh, protection is a little bit deficient in that it has to include the idea of retaliation. The idea there has to be a, a, a one-third recovery. Um, the idea that that however much damage we're we're done with, we 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 are going to to uh, to try to damage the the, uh, the perpetrator, but to the to the extent of one-third. The, the idea of one-third is uh, uh, I spent all the time on the one, three-to-one rule, the book of the history of it. And, and how it's uh, been developed in the in the theater of war, the uh, the, the uh, uh, defender has a three to one advantage over 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 a, an opponent. That's just sort of this is not a exact science, but it's a sort of rule of, rule of thumb that's been developed over the over the years. The uh, Army General Dupre developed that idea, and for a while it was sort of Army, Army doctrine. And I, I think that it feels about right. Uh, again, you, you have to use judgment restraint, but uh, uh, that does set up that, the idea of, one, of the uh, restraint and decreasing spiral retaliation. You have a vision of future wars. So kind of give us the best scenario. How would it play out? Well, the the, uh, the current theory of war includes the idea that it has to be approved, approved by a recognized authority. 
I, I, I claim that's pernicious. And I think that uh, war should be the wageable as individuals against individuals rather than states. I think it's, it is pernicious to fight state to state because you, you develop all the ideas of nationalism and all. And national ideas, of course, are a great thing. I think that the United States is the best possible nation on earth, and the best, uh, and, uh, and it's been blessed by God. But but uh, you know, the other person has has a has a nice state too, and, and that should be a separate thing. It, it should, should or should should be fought by small small groups of people. You need a you need publicity. You need you need. Uh, uh, you, you need to make a grandstand. Uh, you need to uh, publicize your your actions rather than than sneaking and try try to uh, do things like James Bond. You, know, you don't try to do things separately or as the uh, because I, one of my hobbies, of course, is is spy spy novels, and I always try to do things sort of covertly. And I, I, uh, I even claim that I've done a few of those things, but uh, uh, that's not the way we should ideally fight. You suggest that better laws will not result in universal peace. Improved customs concerning the way we fight may result in a slightly better world. And so you have written your book. Yes. Rules of Chivalry for Nuclear War, How We Fight and Persuade Each Other. The author, Albert W. Johnson. Al, tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, let's see. The, uh, go to the website, uh, uh, chivalryandwar.com. I think it's a, a refresh. Is that the right one? Chivalryforwar.com. Yes, and uh, I think there's a section there on how to, how to order it. And, of course, everyone can get it from authorhouse.com, and Hopefully, I'm sure yeah. from any online book retailer, they can yeah. order it. Yes, please. Well, thank you, Al. Thank you for being with us. Uh, very outside of the box thinking about war, uh, but many things to uh, think about. I'm glad, glad to be with you. That was Albert Johnson. He is the author of his book, Rules of Chivalry for Nuclear War, How We Fight and Persuade Each Other.